There we go. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And so I just kind of want to, so we don't lose the momentum, maybe just kind of say a couple of things to then launch us into 4 um, and, and certainly open it for, for any other thoughts or questions you all have on 3 to do that. Um, if we remember what, what Paul was trying to do in 3, what's this, what's this thing that keeps kind of coming back up? What's one of the underlying issues in, in, in Paul's letter here? You can see it in chapter 3 and verse 1. Yeah, Josh. I think it's a great analogy. It's actually an analogy Paul himself uses, right? That he built on the, on the foundation. Um, and it was helpful. Um, someone kind of broke down three, chapter three, in really saying Paul gives a, a few different ways that he's comparing his ministry with th- these individuals. Um, and we talked about a little bit. One, and I think it's the clearest of, of the three, he, he compares the, the content of the ministries themselves. You've got this old covenant that he's now calling a, a ministry of death. It's a, it's a ministry of condemnation. And he compares, well, the, the ministry that I'm bringing to you, which is the ministry of Christ, this, this thing offers life. And he compares the glory of the two. And, and one now seems like it has no glory at all when you compare. But he also, he begins by comparing his recommendations versus their recommendations. They want recommendation from other human beings. And he says, my ministry isn't like that. I've got a recommendation from, from Christ himself. He's the one who... who uh, gave me this ministry. He'll go more more into that in four. And then he says, I don't need pieces of paper. I have you and I have your hearts. So he makes that comparison. But then he also compares himself with someone else in chapter three. And I I don't know that we touched on this. Who else does he compare himself to in chapter three? Am I? I don't know. <laughs> we, we see the, this Moses comparison. Yeah. Um, that n- not just Moses comparing or Paul, but all of us in a sense, whenever we turn to turn to Jesus. Yeah. And we yeah, because Moses, and, and, I, and I don't read this at all as a dig on Moses. I don't read this at all as like, look how ridiculous he was. He put a veil over his face. But we, 
No, he's just saying, you know, back then it, it was understood that this was something that, that, that he did. And it was so glorious, this thing, but it was temporary. It, it faded away. After so long, he didn't need that veil. But then he compares what Moses did with that glory to what they do now in verse 18. But we all, and he does, he does include us all, but we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And there are a couple different ways that we could understand that. But he's saying, look, look at how much more glorious this is now. We don't, we don't need to cover this up. We, we, we get to let the whole world now see this and participate in it. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, it's kind of an almost negative comparison, but it's not a bad negative comparison. Sure. That was something that was needed. Mm-hmm. It was required by them because they couldn't handle it. And it's something that's not needed more, anymore. Now, I see a lot of similar type of teaching here that we see in the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm. We have a much, much, much better this, a much, much, much better that, and all through there. And of course, nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews, but a lot of us think it's Paul. <laughs> but yeah, there's um, just showing you a better way. Yes. Whereas he talked about the death, um, you know, the ministry of death versus the ministry of life. Big comparison. Same things through a veil as opposed to seeing things openly. Again, a big comparison yeah. of what Paul's gospel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and specifically, it's that idea of veiled versus unveiled that I see very much carrying over into four. That it's why I kind of think maybe the chapter break. Um, Let's just let, let's try to continue the thought as we go into four. Um, were there any other thoughts on three before we? Yeah. There was a lot of talk about the difference between the old law and the new law. At least several verses that mentions of it about the letter of the law. Um, you know, what would you say, or what is he saying is the main difference? What you know, one of it is the, the, talks about the spirit. About the death and the life, what what exactly <laughs> what exactly does that mean? What is the difference between the old law and the law? Sure, um, I I would strongly recommend, especially since it's written by the same individual. Um, Paul very clearly lays out those differences in Romans. Um, I wasn't part of that class, but I've I've read it, um, and he makes a variety of different. He he outlines a variety of differences. Um, so I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily saying, therefore, read Romans and let's move on. Um, in this particular passages, what are the differences that, that he lays out? What are the comparisons that he makes? Because sometimes, uh, I threw out the question and then I'll make one more statement. Sometimes Paul uses a similar analogy or similar comparison to make a different point. So there were some points that he was making in Romans that may not be what he's making here, even though he's using the same um, illustration. Uh, but what what is what are, what are the contrasts that he's making here? Well, I say one contrast is that in verse seven, 
Christ's ministry of spirit. And where there's spirit, there's liberty. And I think in this context, it's liberty from death that the um, law of Moses condemned the, because none of us could keep it perfectly. And the law of Christ um, gives us life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What else? Bob? And then we've got mine back. Sorry, we've got Bob here, and in the meantime. Um, yeah, to, uh, to go along with what Anna mentioned, in verse 8, it, it, uh, verse 9, ministry of condemnation, just the idea of we don't see the fulfillment of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, whenever, whenever they did not fulfill the law, um, they, they were guilty of it, and they were condemned, and they were, they were judged to die. Um, but Jesus, as the loving answer for sin, um, and the solution for sin, we can sort of see that perhaps as a, as a distinction. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could Paul be referring to, or alluding to, uh, the fact that the way the, the law, whether you're talking about the law of Moses or the law of Christ, how it is accepted and held. The law of Moses was the letter of the law. And, and the Jews used it to say, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. I'm not like him, but I'm doing this type of thing. Whereas we understand that we all sin under the law of Christ. But we have him to save us, to give us life. And, and we have, uh, it's in our hearts. The prophecy was that the law was going to be, a different law was going to be written in their hearts. And one of the things that Jesus condemned the Jews for was they had the letter of the law, but not the heart. Mm-hmm. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it was said this, and true it was said, even in the uh, Ten Commandments. But they weren't going far enough. They left the heart out of it. Yeah, uh, there's a surface level understanding of what it was. It was a, a do this, don't do that. But from the very beginning, God intended for them to dig deeper than that why should I not do these things to my neighbor? Why should I not do these things in his field? Or why should I, why should I leave the corners of my field open for the foreigner and the traveler? They, they weren't consistently. I think that there were faithful Israelites who, who did this well throughout. And we can see that. But I think on the whole, they were not digging down deep enough to go, why, why do I leave my field in the corner? There? Well, because I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Um, someone wrote it this way, um, and, they, and they quote a passage, as, as Paul expounds on this a little bit more, in Romans chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. They say, The history of the Old Testament proved that while the law of Moses was, and to quote this passage, it was holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good, sin took advantage of what was good. It pointed to God's demand but it gave no power to cause men to obey. 
Right? So the new law, the thing that's supposed to now be written on our hearts, which again is not a New Testament idea. God said it back in the Old Testament. But he said, look, you, you've got to write this thing on your heart so that as you do those things, you, you know why. And you're motivated not by a, you know, not by a, I'm, I'm compelled to do the thing, but it's because I want to. I want to do the things because I love my neighbor and I love God. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, if someone could volunteer to read chapter 4 <clears throat> with those things in mind. Um, and specifically, Paul's not done comparing his ministry, right? He's not done saying, look, they're, they're going about it this way. And that's, that's, that's not the way we as, as ministers of Christ ought to go about. <clears throat> Keeping that in mind, would someone actually read the whole chapter? We're going to try to get through verses 1 through 6 today. But let's read the whole chapter, Bob. Why don't you just camp the mic out over there? This is from the English Standard Version. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of in our, yeah, in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Thank you. Um, as I said, uh, we're going to primarily focus on verses 1 through 6, but... 
Um, what in this chapter, what in this chapter kind of jumped out to you? What, uh, what did it make you think of? What questions do you have? Yeah, Tony? Yeah, you started with that there's things that are veiled, people that see and people that don't see. And you end the chapter with things that people see and things that people don't see. Mm. The problem is that who knows who see, right? And so the previous chapter was talked at there at the end, like you didn't like the chapter right there, is you have individuals that it's being veiled from them. They don't even know that they've got this veil in front of their eyes. And so it's like, well, am I, am I the one that has the veil on my eyes? But I, I see, you know, and that's the, the problem that Jesus was addressing, like with the Pharisees. You say that you see, and that's why your sin remains. That's why you can't mm. seem to get out of this, mm. because you continue to delude yourself. And just the fall, the, the final point about that is, that it's easier to convince someone of a lie than it is to convince them that they have been believing a lie all this time. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, I think the the easiest person it is to deceive is ourselves. That was grammatically incorrect, but I hope you understand what I mean. Right? It, it is easy to convince ourselves of things that aren't true if we tell ourselves usually things about ourselves, right? Uh, we, we, we can make ourselves believe things that aren't true. Um, someone once said, and if it was someone here at Avon, kudos to you, I forgot. Um, without self-reflection, self-deception is inevitable. Um, and so we need to constantly be asking ourselves, okay, am I... Am I looking at this with tunnel vision? What, what might be obscuring my view of this? What he was saying back in, in chapter 3 is they were looking at the law of Moses, but they didn't, they didn't want Jesus in that. Right? They were keeping Jesus out of that. And he said, no, you're, you're looking at the law of Moses without the full picture here. Uh, don't let that happen. Yeah. Uh, looking at verse 1 there, it talks about the mercy. In the Greek it says, having this ministry as we have received mercy... Mm-hmm. It's because of the mercy we receive through the law, through the truth, through the New Testament, the New Covenant, that we do not lose heart. Mm-hmm. And that encourages me. I, Because I can have faith in Christ and faith in His Word, I don't have to lose heart. I am given mercy, whereas the mercy was not available as the same. Now I am given something quite different to, to give a heart to myself. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Are you sure? No. Okay. That phrase, we do not lose heart, there in verse 1, is actually a bookend there in verse 16, right? So maybe helping to see all of that, what, what's inside of those two things. Why is it that we do not lose heart? He starts exactly right by saying, it's by the mercy of God. Think about who Paul was. <laughs> And think about what he was literally in the middle of doing when Christ called him and said, now I want you. He was, he was literally on his way to go murder some more Christians. He was absolutely worthy of punishment. Like that was in direct opposition. But Jesus appeared and said, I'm, I'm gonna, essentially, I'm going to give you mercy. I, I'm going to give you mercy so that you can be a minister to me. 
And even at the moment when Jesus called Paul, he explained it would be a difficult ministry, all the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. But what mercy Paul was shown, and what mercy I've been shown, God should not be using me for anything. God should not be using you for... We're worthy of punishment. And yet God, in His mercy, says, actually, I, I've got a use for you. I've got this ministry. I've got this treasure in jars of clay that I, I need someone to carry for me. Um, and that's... Uh, so we do not lose heart. Right? But, There's a big point in focus here. We're pointing toward focus. And... Uh, you know, there's the light and the darkness. And, and the focus is that which comes after this life. And who is bringing that about? And, and it begins in the you know, early part, light shining out of darkness. Well, that's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we're just pots of clay. Even he calls himself a pot of clay. <coughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, what is a pot of clay? It just holds something that's much better than itself. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's the gospel. And, uh, you know, things happen to us. Nothing happens to the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's going to stay, and it does. And, and so, uh, you know, it's this whole, even through the whole... Uh, Chapter is it's a toward the eternal and the glory is God's. Mm-hmm. What Paul say? What you think of me? I'm just a pot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to borrow a little from verse seven. Is that cool, Micah? Cool. Jars of clay, treasures in jars of clay. What is considered to be the greatest find of Scripture? What in history, when you guys think of the Dead Sea Scrolls, how did they find those? They were shoved down in giant jars. And they're still, many of them, very much intact. They're behind glass bulletproof cases now, but think of that. They're ceramic vessels, and they're huge. Some of them stand this tall. And God said, I'm going to put my treasure in there. Or God allowed his treasure to be put in there. Um, I don't believe he's referring to the Dead Sea Scrolls here. They weren't written yet when Paul was writing these. But the, the premise is the same. It was a practice of that time to put valuables in a ceramic jar. For a couple of different reasons. One, it kept moisture from, from getting in. But two, a thief did not normally assume anything valuable would be inside something like that. And so it was commonly passed over. And what do we see the world do with the gospel? Your leader was crucified on a cross. Your leader asks for self-sacrifice. Your leader, it doesn't, it, it, looks, it looks very unimpressive. But we know, we know that the gospel is deep down the most valuable treasure. Uh, Phil? Yeah, we're just going to... I love the continued imagery of, in comparison to Moses, and Moses asking to see the glory of God, and God said, yes, I'll show it to you, but not my face. Mm-hmm. But then in verse 6, uh, the light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in, in our hearts 
to give the light of knowledge and glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we get to see the full glory of God in human form in Christ with unveiled faces. I just, that imagery is beautiful. Here's your teaser for a sermon I've been thinking about doing, but I don't know. Tommy stole my thunder a month or so ago, so I'm hoping you'll forget it long enough that I can eventually do this. Think of what happened to Moses. He made that request. Show me your face. And God said, you can't. It'll kill you. But he showed him enough. Showed him enough. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration and who appeared on that mountain. It was Moses and Elijah, and think of what they saw. They saw Jesus in all his splendor and glory. Moses finally got to see the face of God. Like, isn't that cool? And that's, that's I think, some of the imagery we're supposed to pull here from, from verse 6. Yes. He's coming. The mic's coming. <coughs> What's that? <laughs> okay. In verse 7 he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God. <clears throat> to me, I always thought it was talking that earthen vessels was us. Yes, <clears throat> yes. If, you know, that the treasure is within us. Yes. If, if, because he's talking about the new covenant being the inner man within and then you go back into Job when he says in Job uh, 4, he said, um, he's talking about the man, mankind being right before God. And in 19 he says, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. So it's, I always thought that he's talking about us there. Yes, yes, and yeah, I, I, I hope I wasn't misunderstood. I was just kind of getting caught up in, in the illustration, right? Jars of clay hiding something valuable, but absolutely, that's what he's saying here. We are not impressive, he says. And again, he's making a comparison. You've got these false apostles, these teachers who are trying to, they've got these letters of recommendation, and they're trying to tell you how impressive they are, and he's saying, that, that's not how I do this. That's not how we do this. I'm a nobody. I'm carrying the gospel, and then any good carrier of the gospel should then then step out of the way and let, let that thing work, right? Um, he said, um, 1 Corinthians 1 is all about that, right? He's like, why are you... We're, we're nobody, yeah. but we're a treasure because we have him dwelling in yes. us. So he turned these nobodies, yes. these earthen vessels, into treasure. Yes, by ourselves, yeah, we are, we are but dust. By ourselves, we are unimpressive. Um, but we, we are told that we are carrying, we are carrying the Holy Spirit, right? We're the temple now of the living God. Um, but if, if the world just looks at us from a distance, they go, I mean, at least they do for me, that there's nothing impressive there. As they should. It's not about us. It's about what we're carrying. Yeah, Bob. This goes back to your sermon that was preaching. <laughs> you have to forget about it so that when I preach it, you're like, wow. Didn't Elijah also want to see the glory of God and saw it from the back? And uh, didn't, you know, didn't see the full glory of God? He also saw Jesus face to face. He got two there. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So we're doing this backwards. That's totally fine. This is all great. Um, 
I'll bring his... Oh, oh no, we can't. Raymond. I have a question. Can I have a number seven as well? <laughs> yes. Awesome. Um, and then you think, so these are really good thoughts about the earthen vessel thing, where, uh, I don't know if it's here tonight, but Brian Lee asked a question several classes ago, maybe even quarters ago, about what are the artifacts that we're leaving behind as uh, modern Christians for other people to find behind us? And mm-hmm. I, I tinkered with the idea that it is disciples. So these are earthen vessels. Because we die. And the only thing that carries it on would be you mentioned the Holy Spirit, where we're continuing this uh, this march forward. And therefore, literally, um, it, the glory does go to Him because we, we've been dying for 2,000 years now, well, the whole time, but post-cross. And it's still going on. It's a very passive, non-violent um, way of conquering the world spiritually. And therefore, like in verse 18, it talks about Tom Yancey, it talks about the unseen. This stuff would look foolish to people. You, you were just mentioning the, the sacrifice of your leader and um, self-sacrifice. This, this is foolishness to the world. And it's just, it's, it's ironic that it's unseen. It doesn't have idols. It does not have a, a, a physical altar anymore. And it's the one thing that's incompatible with everything else. It does look foolish. Mm. But it's true, and it's, it's true because it stands apart from everything else. It's very, it's very interesting. Like that, that it can be preserved um, by sinners forgiven, but it's still that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what does he say back in First Corinthians chapter one? For the Jews demand signs. I'm sorry, First Corinthians one twenty-two. Uh, the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He said, yeah, I can understand from the outside. This is either incredibly offensive if you're a Jew, and you're saying that the Messiah we've been waiting for died on a cross, that's incredibly offensive. Or if you're a Gentile who believes in all kinds of gods, impressive gods, Zeus, and they've got these temples, and your God is the man who died on the cross, it's foolishness. But for those of us who know, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah, Alan. I want to move back to verse 2. That's fine. Well, I, he, he talks about how they, they work on whose heart and they have the mercy of Christ. But he says they have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. It says in the original, refuse to walk in Mm-hmm. You know, he he stands up to those kind of false teachers. He stands up to those who would take the mercy of God and turn it into something that is un, un, unreal, un, unlikable. And he, he says, we stood up to that. We stood that. Mm-hmm. Uh, stood to the face that. He refused to practice. Those who refused to practice their... We refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We refuse to tamper with God's word. I think we've got to be careful when we're talking with people that we do not take God's word and use it in uncunning ways or cunning ways to um, try to get a point across. He's saying it's not it's not to be that way mm-hmm. at all. It's to be mm-hmm. presented in a merciful way, a loving way, 
Right. Yeah, and remember what he called what he called these people back in the end of chapter two. What did he call them? He called them peddlers of God's word. Right? You're just hawking this thing like it's a thing to be sold. Like if you can present it as as appealing enough, they'll buy it from you. And I do think you're right. I I believe that verse two is is a. Um, I almost said underhanded, and that would kind of negate the whole point. It is a subtle reference to these individuals. He doesn't actually call them out, per se, but I think he is still doing this contrast, our ministry versus their ministry, and he's saying these individuals, they use disgraceful, underhanded ways. They use cunning. It's, it's, it's the idea of deceit. Um, some, some would carry with that the, the idea of you're presenting one form of it to this group and one form of it to this group. Or you're, you're only giving them part of it. You're, you're manipulating it, he says. You're tampering with the word of God. And he says, we don't, we don't do that. What does he do? I'm sorry, there is a... There, and then I'll ask the question. And so he makes this contrast. These individuals over here, he calls it disgraceful. It's underhanded. It's deceptive. It's, it's a tampering with the word. They're still using the word. But they're, they're twisting it into something that God did not intend. And he says, we, on the other hand, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Um, it reminded me of, of, of the verse in, in Proverbs 1, verses 20 and 21. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. That's what truth does. Truth and wisdom, they, they cry out. They call attention to itself. They want everyone to hear it. All hear the same message. If, if our message is one way with one group and one way with another group, or if it's part of the way sometimes and a little more, he said, that's not what truth does. Truth and wisdom, they cry it out from the open market street so that everyone can hear it. Did I see some hands? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of the time to 
Peterson nowadays and just people that you go to be entertained by their philosophy, which is a little bit dangerous. Um, even in modern times, it's still here. It's just interesting that it's the written word and there's no new revelation. And this is kind of counter to even what the Jews are going through. And I think it's fair to say it's so new and revelatory that uh, there's equality in that transition too. The, the Jews would have to change and so would the Greeks. I think you'd be able to find unity in that. Um, but this is so new at the time. I'm just thinking. Oh yeah, and, and how hard it would have been for both groups, right? How hard is it um, to, to be told your whole life there are gods for everything. There's a god of feasts and there's gods of fertility and there's gods of the sun and the moon and then for someone to come along and say mm, nope, there's one god and he manifested himself in a human being yet you've probably lost some people and then while he was here he preached an idea of, of self-sacrifice and loving your enemies and uh, hold on, he's losing more and then he died. Like how hard it would be to go, yeah, that's, that's not what I grew up here in. Um, right. Yeah, and they certainly did. Yeah, yeah it seems uh, that he may be addressing more individuals that, uh, that are underhanded, or, uh, that are malicious or self-seeking, But also not to not to miss the point though that even with good intentions to be misrepresenting the truth and uh, trying to make things more palatable for someone, mm-hmm. but because even Paul says, "I don't want to know anything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified," and that's that's the bulk of his message, and that's kind of what he gets to here of uh, that we're not preaching ourselves, but we're preaching Jesus. And I think even in this modern age, that that's, that's difficult to just boldly say exactly, okay, so if you want to know more about Jesus, well, it's going to take a life of sacrifice. Like, that, that, that's hard. Mm-hmm. But that's where Jesus would start with conversations with people. That Let's just get the hard thing out of the way. It's like the number of times that uh, we'll have, uh, like, a salesman call us up at work, and I'm like, okay, so what's the catch? Or, okay, so what's my real cost? You know, don't just sugarcoat this thing. I just want to know. You know, like, I hate, the, I hate to have to play the games. So yeah. Like, okay, but what are they not telling me? And it's kind of what Paul is doing. Right? It's exactly what Paul is doing. And that's why it's so actually palatable to the people who actually have a taste for it's like those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's going to satiate their hunger and thirst. But the people that aren't hungry or thirsty for it, it's not. It's going to, they're going to turn their nose up to it. Mm. And God's trying to call them, but they're, they're refusing that. And let's not be trying to flavor it just for them. That God's already got the recipe. And just work with that. Yeah. And the right people will come with that. Yeah. I mean, it was, when, uh, when Tommy covered the portion of Matthew that talks about it's, it's more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? 
One of the reasons why is because they have so much more they're going to have to let go of. Right? What does it cost us to follow Jesus? Everything. Right? And wouldn't you? Yeah. And, and, and Jesus himself said, you've got, to, you've got to count the cost before you build this tower. You've got to know what it's going to take. You've got to know what it's going to take. Um, but we also know, we also know that, that part of what Jesus said, and, and Paul says quite a bit of this, is, uh, well, he says it in this chapter, right? Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. So he said, yeah, yes, it's going to be hard. It's been hard for me, he says. We're going to have to give up a lot. But just like comparing the old law to the new law, comparing what we have to give up to this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, it's going to feel like, on that end of it, like it was this light momentary affliction. Uh, yeah, Luke, I'm sorry. Yeah, Josh's point about keeping in mind who's the servant, I think is really important here. Because it's one of the things that I've been reflecting on when I was preparing for First Corinthians, and I would have done a bunch of reading on some of these mega churches. And not all mega churches fall into this, but there's a tendency for a lot of them where they form around a very eloquent speaker. And when that eloquent speaker disappears, the church disappears. And I don't just mean mm. they leave and they go to other congregations, I mean they lose their faith entirely. When that happens, it begs the question, were they following the servant or were they following the master? I think we have to keep that in mind because there's other sides to that too, though, where we have to go the other way around. Well, I don't know about that church because you know, I don't think the preacher's eloquent enough. Well, well, again, you've got to ask that question. And I'm not saying that's not part of why you might go there or not. I'm just saying he's got to look at the bigger picture with that. Or what if somebody who was very formative in your spiritual development that you personally knew and fell away? Would that yeah. rock you to the core? Or would you say, well, that person was a servant? You just got to keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, it goes back to this. This was the core behind many of the problems that was reported to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, right? They had put their faith in the servants that had brought the message rather than in who the message was about. Um, and, and Paul certainly did not uh, intend for them to do that. Uh, Micah? I can appreciate that in that verse, uh, verse 5, uh, we don't preach of ourselves, but Christ Jesus, our Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants. Mm-hmm. And we see in, in almost every epistle, Paul refers to himself as, as bondservant of Christ, but he is viewing himself and his ministry as a servant and a slave mm-hmm. for them. What do I do with my with my ministry, do I do I view my ministry as a as a servitude to my brethren, to the world around me? Yeah, there's value in seeing it as uh, serving God, of course, but we are serving one another. Right. Somebody shout out the passage because I can't think of the, the verse. But Paul says, "I would gladly spend and be spent for your sakes." Right. Micah's flipping. I'm sorry, I don't have that in front of me. But that, right, that was his philosophy. Look, I am at your disposal. And Paul and most of the other apostles, history tells us, save for John perhaps, most of them literally spent themselves to death. And they considered that uh, valuable. Was there a hand back there? Or? No. Okay. Cool. Um, just a yeah, just a couple uh, a quick question. Am I missing a hand? Can we talk about the God of the world? 
go to this world? Cool, let's do it. Um, he says in verse 4, because we've been talking about uh, blindness and, and being able to see this veil, but he says in verse 4, in their case, in these individuals' cases who are doing this to the word, um, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? What's he trying to prevent them from seeing? And uh, maybe to help us answer the question, what passages can you think of that speak to the tactics of this God of the world? Bob is up here and Bob is over there, so the Bobs can fight it out. Well, before one of the Bobs go, the spend and peace on passages, chapter 12, verse 15. Thank you. I don't like referencing passages without giving numbers. I, I appreciate that. Yes, Bob. Which verse did he say? I went, I went dead. He's getting the mic. He said 12 and 15? No. Okay. okay. I wasn't sure. I didn't want to repeat. John 12, 40, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes or understand with their heart, and be a converted, and that I should heal them. You know, I, I thought about this one too. I'm just going to give me uh, Ephesians six twelve. Although it's not specific, it incorporates the prince of the power of the air, if you will, and uh, we're familiar with it. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so Satan is referred in various other passages as being the ruler of this world, the god of this world. Um, he has, uh, to what extent of this capacity? I'm not going to claim that I know, but he has to some capacity, some rule over this existence right here. And he is, he is blinding the minds of the unbelievers. And isn't this just like Satan? We see him doing this in the very first pages of the Bible. And how does he do it? We just don't have time. So I'm, instead of asking the question, I'm going to list just a few of his tactics. He uses deceit. He uses despair. He uses... Um, where's my list? The veil. Yeah, he, he uses self-deception. Sometimes, uh, uh, when Jesus told the parable of the, of the sower... He said that when the, when the seed fell on the path and the birds quickly took it away, that that's Satan who comes and just, it takes the word away before it's had, had a chance to germinate. Sometimes Satan uses a variety of means to be like, I don't want you to pay attention to what he just said. I don't want you to pay attention to that word because Satan knows what that word will produce in a heart if it actually gets planted. Yes, Bob? Quickly, uh, another reference. Yes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Yes. Thank you. So let's not end on a note of, man, he's got so much power and think of all of his tactics and his rules. Verses like that and others say his time in that position is limited. The game's over. It's not a game. The battle is over. 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So whatever it is that he's been doing all this time, Jesus has come to to destroy those things. He's going to put an end to them. And I love this. 
Um, Well, did you mention Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the principalities and powers, and he made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. God struck a decisive blow against Satan at Calvary. And while there are still a few skirmishes happening here, the battle is over. The victor has been announced. And, and we, don't need to, we don't need to fear Satan as long as we are aware of the tactics he's still using and, and guard ourselves against them. That was the second bell, is it? Put the, no, Raymond? This is a stretch. I'm going to Okay. You can throw that one to Micah at the beginning of next class. On Sunday, we'll do verses 7 through 18. But since we so thoroughly covered 7, it'll probably be... Thank you.